Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome. 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 Hey everybody, welcome back to the Anthony and Todd show. I'm your host Trevor and I'm Vincent. Uh, we got an exciting show lined up for you today. We'll be covering a couple of hip-hop albums that have come out this year, and then one that's pretty recent. On this week's show, we're going to be talking about the latest Makami, Pray for Haiti, the latest Your Old Droog record, now he calls it his debut album, Time, and finally, the latest Steel Tip Dove record, Call Me When You're Outside, with a lot of Dove's closest friends. <laughs> they all are coming over to his house, and they all each let him know when they're out so he can let them in. How nice. That is very kind of him. So, uh, without further ado, the reviews. Go for it. Here's our thoughts on the latest Makami record. Pray for Haiti. <laughs> Pray, Pray for, for your, your matey. matey. <laughs> this is a God's dream. <laughs> Anyone who knows underground hip-hop probably knows the name Makami. This bandana-wearing Haitian-American rapper has been brewing under the surface of the music scene for years, specifically with his crew of Yorl Droog and The God Fahim. If you don't know him for his music, you probably know him for his lack of music. Only a handful of his releases are available on streaming services, and if you like what you hear... Prepare to spend triple digits on the record or even just the CD. Want to read his lyrics to try to catch every reference or punchline? Post them online and you'll get hit with a DMCA takedown. He doesn't even have social media. In a way, this makes him seem pretty unlikable, but honestly, he's not really looking for your approval. On the Anthony and Todd show, we started to take notice of Mach with his 2019 release, Wapcon Joge. A 15-minute EP chock full of features like Earl Sweatshirt and Quelle Chris, and some great hooks and bars. One specific audio clip that comes to mind is where two guys are talking about what it takes to get famous on that record, and apparently the answer to that would be a Griselda stamp of approval. The biggest and most apparent difference between this record and Mach's previous efforts is that Pray for Haiti was personally overseen by Westside Gun and then put out on Griselda Records. Interestingly enough, as Mach fans know well, Mach was a founding member of Griselda, but eventually Gun and Mach kind of fell out of touch. There wasn't any beef. Uh, Mach went his own way with Fahim, and Gunn recruited his cousin Benny into Griselda. And in a way, this album feels like it was in the works for a really long time. After finally reuniting, Gunn got his craziest beats out for Mach, even stopping his work on Hitler Wears Hermes 8 to make this album happen. Fortunately, for the most part, Mach brings the heat to match Gunn's energy. Pray for Haiti starts off with hypnotic brassy horns building and Mach shadily lingering over top like a mob boss. The opening moment on the 26th letter sets up the tone of the record perfectly. A dusty and audacious album that manages a level of class that makes it feel like I'm watching a New York crime drama. Westside Gun's later presence is their display of wealth and opulence, traits with both him and Mach share and used to build a common ground, having a perfect balance on this album. Whenever they trade off, it feels unblemished, like these two both highlight this unachievable level of status in one another. And I feel that's what makes this Mach's best album to date. Having Westside executive produce and feature provides this auteurish level of stability to this album. You feel completely fulfilled at every twist and turn, which only builds up Mach more as this mysterious, enigmatic character in hip-hop. This is what he should sound like. Having 
something to intrigue the audience to what's behind the bandana, not just being an underground artist who covers his face. This album really does feel like Mach is reuniting with his old friends and family. He feels right at home over the sharper production, and Westside personally even hops on multiple tracks. Much like his public identity, Mach keeps his lyrics strictly focused on surface-level things. He raps about luxury and working with gun, but never really about his personal life. And obviously not every rapper owes the audience that, but it's even more apparent that with newfound fame in the mainstream, Mach still wishes to keep his identity secret with extensive metaphors about the Creole language, specifically a skit featuring a news clip that talks about different regional dialects of Creole and how each one has phrases and sayings that people from other regions may not understand. With Mach keeping his lyrics off the internet, even with the sharpest of ears, listeners may not catch everything he says, and even if they do, it still may not make any sense to them. And I feel like that's kind of the magic of Mach, and it only adds to the mystique in the public eye. Another good thing this album does is feel segmented. None of these tracks go past four minutes. It's just brief looks into the mysterious world of Makami. I feel like staying too long would be exhausting and take away from a lot of the mythos of the album. The opposite of this can be represented by some of West Side Gun's solo work in the past. Sometimes having tracks that just overstay their welcome and the overcommunication of ideas can take a bit away from Westside's persona. Folia Doe contains the traditional Griselda-style production from Conductor Williams. Conductor! Conductor! Flourishing 1930s keys take center stage and leave a nourishing atmosphere in the air. The thing that makes the track one of the best on the album is the intensity of Mach's verse. Audibly louder than usual, especially during his rendition of the Griselda machine gun ad-lib, which comes off as jarring because Mach's usually reserved nature. Keisha Plum's verse is perfect as her voice rings out over the traveling synth in the production. Her usual hushed, hyperviolent delivery is a good precedent to Mach's more-in-your-face verse. The track The Stellar Ray Theory is the third track produced by Conductor Williams, and it's a classic hip-hop rags-to-riches story. Mock's storytelling really shines on this track, and it's one of the most rewarding to come back to in order to try to catch every piece. Mock glides through Williams' rainy day jazz sample. Conductor Williams is definitely one of the unsung heroes of this record, and Stellar Ray is probably the best example of his great ear for samples. This is also one of the only songs on the album that has a hook, and it's a very good one at that. Murder Season shows off the deep vocals that Mach has brought up a few times over the last few years. There's surprising passion shown in his voice. It sounds like he's having fun in the track, holding these deep notes and just letting the acoustics air out. Magnum Band showcases the bond between the god Fahim and Mach. The instrumentation from Messiah music makes it feel like the keys are constantly raining down, leaving no moment for rest as Mach eloquently flows through this messy instrumental, passing over to the god Fahim whose breathless delivery feels tense and matches the hectic instrumental. It feels like Fahim is clenching during his entire verse, responding to the stress of the beat, before getting cut off at the end by the closing producer tag. The final track, Ten Boxes Sin Eater, Mach comes out of the shadows and faces the audience directly before closing the album. Over the ringing instrumental of bells, Mach is able to assert his dominance and leave a lasting impression, before the bells cut out leading to distant bassy organ. The final Griselda tag feels like it's listing itself as a brand name, further leading to the impression of status and wealth that Mach's music gives off. As Mach enters the mainstream, it really makes me wonder how much he has to compromise on or will compromise on with his music. As he mentions in the 26th letter, he had to dumb it down on his slow 50 cent flow, which I know is like one of the most quoted lines off of this whole project, but I think it really speaks to his thoughts on the mainstream and, and being more popular now. Also, Pray for Haiti is 
double, almost triple the length of a typical mock project. So it makes me wonder, is this the project he had always dreamed of putting out? Is this what he really wanted at all? Pray for Hades seems to go against everything Mach has stood for in the past, and in a lot of ways, I'm glad. Inaccessibility only makes it harder to grow as an artist, but in Mach's case, it seems to have put him at a legendary status. If Mach is willing to continue to put out his future releases on more accessible platforms, I'm excited to see which artists he'll work with next. I feel like that really opens the door to a lot of new uh, communication that he can do now. Just don't expect to catch me with one of his physical records at my house, though. Those are way too expensive. Ouch. Here's some thoughts on the latest Yorl Droog record, Time. Back in 2019, as Vincent and I remember back in the old days. Oh, the old days of pre-COVID, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ukrainian-American rapper Ural Drug hit us with this amazing, incredible three-peat of albums. After taking a short break in 2018, Drew graced our ears and playlists with It Wasn't Even Close, Transportation, and Jewelry, all with different themes and features. All three of these projects were incredible, with It Wasn't Even Close ranking among his best projects. What I especially liked on these projects was Drew's storytelling and world-building especially on jewelry, which centered around his Jewish heritage and what it's like to be a Jew in America. Recently, though, Drug has been going a little crazy with releases. Last year, he put out the long-awaited Dump Yod Crutoy edition, and earlier in 2021, two collab albums with his close friend and colleague, The God Fahim. I can't in good faith say that these albums are bad, necessarily, but they do lose a lot of Drug's initial identity and the reasons that made me enjoy his music in the first place. Luckily for us, this summer... Droog decided to release Time, a hodgepodge of tracks including some made around 2016 or 17, mixed in with some more recent cuts. For this effort, he really pulled out all the stops too. We have features from Doom, Aesop Rock, LZ, Blue, Mick Jenkins, and Wiki, as well as beats from Mono and Stereo, Edon, Roper Williams, 88 Keys, and Quelle Chris. Droog calls this his debut album, but for those who have listened to his six apparently non-existent preceding efforts, this feels like a real return to form for him. Time is charismatic, slick, and able to maintain the standard that Droog's albums have set over the last couple of years. Droog effortlessly flows over a wide array of beats that may have different influences in style, but are well-connected in the feeling of age and the passing of time. As given away by the title, the overarching theme of this album is time, mostly revolving around Droog's childhood and teenage years. Each smaller section of tracks is then given a secondary theme, such as school, drug use, and sexual encounters. Every once in a while, Droog will just kind of play with the concept of time itself, like on the track The Magic Watch. Here, Droog's storytelling is at peak performance, as he takes on this devil-like character who will sell anyone a magic watch for ten bucks. The watch allows the wearer to go back in time to any point they want, and we see people go using it to go back to see their deceased grandmother, try to prevent a rape resulting in teenage pregnancy, and rethink a murder that landed them in prison. Unfortunately for those people, the time travel is just an illusion, and while they can relive their past, they can't change their fates. The line, the man with the magic watch is all they've seen, is repeated each time, as if Droog has trapped each victim in their own personal hell to relive over and over again. We've seen Droog spin narratives before, but never really from a perspective other than his own, and I think that's why I find this track so interesting. 
The Magic Watch is probably one of the best tracks Droog has made. Droog's use of science fiction feels absolutely natural. He brings the character out of himself and applies it to the characters in the story of the world. This grounds the narrative and makes it flow extremely well with the rest of the stories on the album. These small character moments make just a nice, stacked, well-balanced track that is the hip-hop equivalent of a Twilight Zone episode. The next track released, Listen to My Jew Tape, is a humble moment where Droog reflects on the struggle of it being a different voice in hip-hop and why he chose to remain independent. Nothing groundbreaking is revealed through this track, but it's the sentiment that makes it the most important. Drew feeling victorious after being mislabeled and misunderstood. Please listen to my Jew tape as a moment that really needed to grow on me before I could appreciate it to its fullest potential. The reason why is because I started to think of Drew's career so far and kind of where he falls on the rap timeline. For starters, Droog's appearance on the scene was kind of at a weird time. He missed the big indie rap boom of the early 2010s that spawned acts like Run the Jewels and Danny Brown's success stories, but didn't quite fall in with the more trap-oriented sound of the mainstream. His debut projects were already getting compared to Nas, which wasn't really something anyone was asking for at the time. At that point, Griselda was still just a twinkle in West Side Gun's eye. In a lot of ways, Drew got left behind, even by his contemporaries. For example, just look at Makami now. Jewtape sees Drew lamenting this as he raps about not fitting in with the scene, the struggles of being independent, and being stuck in a rut of trying to promote his work. As someone who acts very high and mighty on Twitter, blocking everybody that says literally anything to him, it's compelling to see him knock himself down a peg on this track. The introspection and personal anecdotes that Droog shares on time is easily my favorite part of the album. Droog has kept his life very protective and secret. I don't even think that we know, like, his real name, do we? It's Droog. That's his name. First name, Yor. Yor. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating to hear him come forward with these stories about his childhood and adolescence. Speaking of another protected rapper, the oldest track on here, Dropout Boogie with Doom, serves as one of my favorite uncovered posthumous doom verses so far. This track is kind of a double feature with a beat switch up in the middle from Edon. Both Droog and Doom talk about their experiences in school as kids, getting into trouble, fighting, and playing hooky. My favorite line, Droog says, principals tried to keep me out the hall like Pete Rose. I love that line. It's so good. Doom's beat especially serves him really well with its bass guitar heavy comic book style instrumental. As he's worked with Droog before, the two have great chemistry and you can tell that this verse wasn't just phoned in like some of of his later verses were. He's spry and nimble like he was on his 2000s era albums, and I think that fact makes this track hit even harder. Dropout Boogie could have come out 20 years ago. Doom, while not as physically youthful as he was around the release of Operation Doomsday, performance-wise is able to capture that wild, loose style that reinvented himself back in 1999. His passing in 2020 has left a legacy that will be unfilled, but collaborating with Drew showcased that while that spot will always be empty, new spots were born and artists inspired by the legacy he left. Droog delivers a wild vintage verse that showcases inspiration from Doom, but has a brassy and dynamic flow that shows that Droog is his own man. From here, Droog takes us through the world of school with tracks like So High serving as a weed-smoking anthem and giving his backstory on why he decided to give it up. Hip Hop Lullaby is all about a situation where Drew got beat up as a kid for his clothes, and his mom taught him how to punch properly. Finally, Drew teams up with Wiki for a sprawling ballad about appreciating loved ones in your life before they're gone. Just about every track on here has some sort of personal narrative from Drew, and it really helps listeners to understand where he is now and how he got there. There's these Anthony Jeselnik segments in between these tracks where he talks about going back in time and killing baby Hitler, 
they're fine, I guess. I can see why he's on here because his and Drew's sense of humor seem similar, but nothing he says is really that necessary to the aesthetic of the album. I feel like it w- this would be more jarring if he didn't make similar appearances on Drew's packs beforehand. They don't take up much time, but they do feel weird matched with the sentiment of some of these tracks. Honestly, I don't. I don't really like them. I feel like it kind of ruins the flow of the album. Well, there isn't that many of them, and they're aren't that long but it it is jarring especially at the end of the magic watch like it's just like the magic watch we got to the end of the narrative and that's just like stupid hey guys it's me anthony (laughs) (laughs) no time is just a basic message just highlighted in a nice way with a good hook nimble eastern style strings and the inclusional wiki which feels like a starting point to a lot of the character he would later unwind on his own album half god the track reflects on how little time we have with those we love matching the loose theme of time and carrying what please listen to my jew tape have a simple connection to the audience drug isn't trying to preach to you or showcase some grand mirage of an idea he just effortlessly relates to the audience and reflects on a connected sense of mortality the distant rendition of I've had the time of my life brings humor to a dark reflection, leaving a more optimistic outro to the track and the album before the final moment of synth-based meditation on 449 outro. It's not often that an album made of old recordings sounds cohesive and complete, but time fits the bill well. Part of the success, I believe, has to do with Droog's choice of a broader theme. There are so many things one can do with the concept of time. One of my only issues with this album is that in calling it his debut album, your old Droog downplays his entire body of work put out before this, including those three amazing 2019 albums we mentioned earlier. And listening to just about everything he's put out before time, it's clear to see his growth as an artist and how much he's learned from his past projects. His punchlines have gotten sharper, his ad-libs are funnier, and his ear for a good beat is near perfect now. Definitely do not overlook his earlier works, especially if you enjoy time. As for this album and Droog's future, I hope he continues to work on more projects like this. Each beat is catchy enough to draw you in, but it's Droog's unique perspective and detailed narratives that make you want to stay. And finally, here's our thoughts on the latest Steel Tip Dove record, Call Me When You're Outside. I think I see him outside right now. (laughs) Joseph Fusaro, better known as Steel Tip Dove's bio, says, In every arts community, there are people who, despite being little known, even to fans of the scene, are deeply embedded in its past and present. And I definitely think he fits that bill. We first got a knowing taste of Steel Tip Dove's work with The Devil Defeated, a collab album from 2020 with Darko the Super. Dove's wacky beats fit Darko's personality perfectly, especially on tracks like Butterflies in My Tummy and Let Go and Let God. Looking back at his work, though, I've been unknowingly listening to Steel Tip Dove for years. Fusaro has worked with the likes of Arm and Hammer, as well as both members individually, uh, Rap Ferreira, formerly known as Milo, more Mother, and MC Paul Barman, just to name a few. He's done production work and engineering work on some of our favorite projects of the past decade. Dove's latest album, however, finally sees him stepping out of the shadows and taking credit for the work he's put in. Call Me When You're Outside is Dove's latest record on Backwoods Studios, and he's brought some friends along to help. Call Me When You're Outside is a true testament of atmospheric hip-hop production, an album that's probably just a bunch of scattered studio sessions from Steel Tip Dove's Brooklyn studio, feels naturally tied together by his curation and production. The lineup changes throughout, but the composure remains the same. 
Each artist is catered to, but Steel Tip Dove manages to keep it in his realm. So whatever happens in the track can beautifully flow into the next one. And that's impressive with some of the more unhinged performances from the likes of Fatboy Sharif and Sketch 185. These performances can coexist in the lineup with the more abstract material. While the curation is an important element, it isn't the best aspect. It's how Joseph can craft beats that totally resonate with the artist and make them feel at home regardless of setup. Like on Kingston, the hats, crashes, bells, and saxophone in the lineup provide a loud metallic background for Kia's vocals to shine off of. She is able to gracefully float through the environment with her uplifting, gorgeous vocals. She is almost like the last piece of the instrumentation for the beat, filling out the environment, giving the track a surreal, numbing quality. This is matched with Billy Wood's verse, which provides a level of mystery, matching the hard-to-decipher surreal tone. Then the pads in the background become gated and leave you with this cold, swirling texture that eventually erases the track so you can transition on to the next one. I think by listening to just the instrumentals for this album, it's apparent that Dove's curation is just another part of his mixing. As he did with The Devil Defeated, every featured artist was handpicked to best complement his beats that he's made. His production is dark and concrete, yet floaty and abstract. His drums are booming and crashing like trash cans echoing in a back alley, the pitched percussion on tracks like Buddy Ryan call to mind noir movies of old but add a dreamlike quality to the tracks. His use of the human voice is also very noted, like Vincent just mentioned, such as Kia's vocalises in Kingston, Fielded on Don't Move, and Fatboy Sharif's moans and cries in Black Spider-Man. Don't Move contains one of the most impressive performances that I've heard from Fat Tony. He comes through as genuine and blunt. Nothing fancy, just flatly talking to the audience about gentrification in his neighborhood. He has a fantastic hook on the track that is an absolute earworm. He raps over the angelic vocals of Fielded and the light music box keys. This track feels comfortable, and which I think makes the sentiment of Fat Tony come through stronger, almost like he's showing you the beauty of his home and why it's important to him. Peak Sifu comes through with a more flashy verse that contains his hushed, intimate vocals, similar to his performance on the Avalanche's track, Running Red Lights, matching Fat Tony and the instrumental perfectly and providing this hazy, nostalgic feel. The track NFT with the Koreatown Oddity and Billy Woods is another favorite on here. On it, the two rappers discuss the price of time and its uniqueness to the human condition, comparing it to that of an NFT. The whole concept reminds me of that short sci-fi film, The Price of Life, where the people have barcodes on their arms and trade time for goods and services, rather than currency. Dove's trippy, ambient beat solidifies this concept, and Dominique and Woods have excellent chemistry here, with both adding in their two cents within each other's verses. There's also a really funny line about Nardwar, too, that uh, Dominique gives us. Pirouette is brash and hazy, forwarded by these harsh synths that overtake Shirt's feature. Strangely enough, I find the production and mastering similar to that of a Playboy Cardi track. The instrumentation blinds the audience to the vocals, but it's weirdly perfect. Not to say Shirt doesn't have anything to say, he's just highlighted by being placed in the background, but being lost in the shuffle, he's able to match with the atmosphere and create this flashy, blinding verse. Buddy Ryan, ooh ee I feel just like Buddy Ryan, <laughs> starts off not too far from any other Billy Woods track. Dark keys and heavy drums provided by Steel Tip match Billy Woods in your face verse. 
These two always work well together. That isn't a surprise. The true surprise is a sample that sounds like some lady screaming in the crowd at a professional wrestling show. This rush of rage is followed through by Sketch 185, who's completely off his chain, hectically rhyming over the top the same instrumental, but this time he changed the environment, bringing more color momentum to not only the instrumental, but Billy Wood's later performance as well. This was the perfect track to have on before Black Spider-Man. This is the point where the album goes off the rails. Black Spider-Man is the perfect introduction to Fatboy Sharif. It's warped, strange, gelatinous, and infectious, similar to a cut off his last record, Gandhi Loves Children. The first half has psychedelic guitars over top these weird, pitch-down, stretched vocals. Fatboy comes through with a heavy performance, which makes the instrumental seem normal in comparison. His vocals are duplicated and delayed, which makes the track even feel more alien. It's like Fatboy is split in half, and each half of him is performing his verse. The second half pumps the brakes with light guitar and drums that are buried in the mix behind Fatboy's slow verse. His vocals are made even more abstract by the continued use of delay on his voice, before a raw performance pops out at the end over sirens and guitars, which is this complete balanced moment of a dark brooding tone that leaves a very lasting impression on you. I feel weirdly proud of Fusaro for even releasing this album. Like I said before, Dev has been in the shadows for such a long time, and Call Me When You're Outside feels like he's finally stepping up and taking credit for what he's been doing for so long. It's only by hard work and a great ear for engineering and production that he's been able to make it this far, and the amount of great features on this project just goes to show that. Not only this, but Dove still works for his featured artist in handcrafting the perfect beats for them as well. I hope he continues to release projects like this. It's fun to see the amalgamation of everything he's been working toward up until this point. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of the Anthony and Todd Show. I hope you enjoyed our reviews. I hope you continue to stay tuned for our future episodes and playlists and memeing around. If you want to follow the Anthony and Todd show on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Anthony and Todd. You can find me on Twitter at the Vincent Short. You can find Trevor on Twitter at Alistair McCallis. I have a new album out, Layer Effects, Songs to Inspire Creativity, which you can find now on Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, and Amazon Music. But until next time, guys, I've been Vincent. I'm Trevor. And see you, boyos. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. 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 Thank you. Goodbye.